Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. As the announcer said, you can find everything at tedhart.com. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. It's great to have back here on the Nonprofit Coach, Ashley Gatewood, Communications and Marketing Director at CFRE International. And uh, Ashley, bring us up to date on all of the activities over at CFRE.org. All right, great. Thank you so much, Ted. It's excellent to be here as always. Next week on June 22nd, I'm going to be running our free webinar about the CFRE exam. So if any of your listeners out there have been putting off earning their CFRE because they're afraid of the exam or they don't feel like they know how to prepare for it, I will take everyone through the A to Z of that process. It's a free one-hour webinar, and if you go to cfree.org, you will see the link to register on our homepage. We also have our next application deadline coming up, which is July 15th. So for anyone that would like to sit for that CFRE exam in the July 15th to September 15th CFRE testing window, be sure you get your application in no later than July 15th, and then you'll be able to do that. And if you don't want to sit for the CFRE exam in that test window, uh, that's fine. Just don't forget that when you do submit your application, you've got up to one year to take the exam. So we give you plenty of study time if you need it. And then the last thing I just wanted to remind your listeners about our CFRE ambassador program. And that is a free program I run where if you are thinking about earning your CFRE or you want to talk to someone who's been through the process and get their advice, you can email me at share, which is not like the singer, but like the word S-H-A-R-E, at CFRE.org, and I can pair you with a current CFRE who will be happy to share their words of wisdom. Well, that's terrific. And, and uh, just to remind uh, our listeners, you know, once you sit for the exam, um, how, good, how long is the certification before it needs to be renewed? Oh, excellent question. So once you pass the exam, you are a CFRA, and you will recertify every three years. So essentially, if you become a CFRA this year, it will be in effect until you need to recertify in 2024. That's terrific. And, and of course, uh, our listeners know uh, that here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, we encourage all of our listeners 
to uh, you know seriously consider uh, sitting for the exam, what it shows about you as a professional, uh, and uh, and also collectively what it shows about uh, the the fundraising profession and the skill sets uh, that uh, that we hold up uh, and the the ethics. Um, uh, determinations for uh, for our profession as well. So, uh, Ashley, thank you so much for being with us here and keeping us uh, up to date on uh, exams and prep. Um, I do have just one more question for you, just something that we've not addressed before. Um, but you know, for those who you know had their CFRE, have had it for a few times, and then and then you know their 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 career, they're looking to retire. Um, tell us just a little bit about CFRE retired and and what that status is. Yeah, sure thing. So we have a retired status for folks who essentially are going to retire, and it's a one-time fee that is equivalent to recertification fee, which if you're a member of a participating organization, so that would be like an AFP, AHP, et cetera, uh, the fee is $408 US dollars. And then with that, you can still retain your access to the CFRE Central Online Community, you can use, there's a special designation CFRE Retired that you can use after your name and all of that good stuff. So if you do decide, say, in your retirement that you want to fundraise as a volunteer for your favorite cause, you know, when you when you go to the board or you go to the, those volunteering folks, they will see through CFRE Retired that you were, in fact, a, a CFRE who had recertified at least twice. And Ashley, it keeps you connected to be able to be a mentor uh, to be able to continue uh, to support your your chosen profession, so that that's a great opportunity for folks to you know become CFRE even if it's later in your career. Absolutely, for sure. Well, Ashley, it's not not a secret to you or or to uh, our page two guest today. The reason that I wanted to to go there um, is because our topic today is helping board members achieve. Uh, full potential, and of course, having uh, CFRE designated uh, folks working with you and retired folks who might serve on your board or might be a mentor uh, to your organization is just a really smart plan uh, for any nonprofit. And Ashley, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you so much. Take care. And with that, we're going to head right on over to our page two expert. I am so excited to have Mary Highland here with us as our page two expert. She is a PhD and brings over 40 years of experience. She's a coach, a mentor, and a consultant. Um, most importantly, I think for you today uh, is her new book that we're going to be speaking about. Terrific book, Love Your Board, uh, the Executive Director's Guide to Discovering the Sources of Nonprofit board troubles and what to do about them. Maybe one of the longest titles that we've seen, uh, Mary. But uh, she comes with uh, lots of experience, and part of that is um, her executive experience began with a small nonprofit with just about a $100,000 budget, which she grew by leading two nonprofit mergers into one of the largest nonprofits in the California Bay Area with 530 staff and a budget of $25 million. So you're in the right place because Mary Highland knows what she's talking about. She began consulting in 2002, working with several hundred nonprofits, including associations and all-volunteer nonprofits. The focus of her consulting has always been board development and executive leadership. Uh, she has gone on to become certified as a strategic restructuring consultant. Uh, Mary has trained and consulted with over 90 nonprofits on mergers and strategic alliances, coaching and facilitating nonprofit leaders uh, through all processes and all phases. Uh, so, Mary Highland, uh, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, and uh, what a resume. Oh, thank you, Ted. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and have a chance to talk with you and your listeners. Well, you know I'm a fan, and I just want to share with my, uh, with, uh, my listeners here, you, you have this terrific uh, new book that, that uh, you're going to uh, review with us uh, today. Uh, but you asked me to uh, take an early look at this book and to review it, and I just want to share uh, with, uh, with our listeners what I wrote um, about your book, uh, just uh, to give them a bit of a sense of what I think about uh, what we have here. Um, oh, and uh, that is, over three decades as a nonprofit chief executive, few things have been more critical to success than that of a well-functioning and strategically powerful board. 
too often a board of directors has challenges that can only be resolved by doing the hard work of identifying and then solving its weaknesses. Mary Hyland does a masterful job guiding the chief executive to help board members identify telltale symptoms and follow them to the problem's root cause. Having taken this journey together, they are then guided along a path towards resolution. Love Your Board is for any executive director or CEO uh, who wants to help their board achieve its full potential. Mary, let, let me start off. Before we get into the table of contents and sort of the book itself, I, I want to talk more about um, the philosophy that brought you to this book because, you know, if we're just all being honest among ourselves in these four walls on this podcast, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of folks out there that can be quite critical about their board of directors, and, and oftentimes that becomes, a, you know, a, a stress point between uh, the staff, the executive, uh, and the board. And, and many times when there's discussions of this sort, it doesn't really start off with the concept of loving your board, uh, but it starts off with sort of fixing your board. Um, so just kind of start off with sort of your your philosophy that brought you to write this book, and, and why start with loving your board? Well, Ted, that's a great question. I really appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about this because I found when I left my executive director role, I was, I, I was blessed with a great board. And frankly, I had, uh, I would guess, lack of perspective. But I do know that I had many colleagues who complained about their boards, and there's a lot out there in the literature still today talking about underperforming boards. I call it board bashing. Well, because of my own experience and then experiences I saw other executive director have that were positive, I really began to feel like, you know, board members are volunteers. They don't join your board to cause trouble. They join your board because they care about a mission. And I have just always felt passionate that there's lots of potential in that boardroom. I see it in my practice all the time. And I think that if we could shift our perspective that there is so much that can be done for and with the board to really help those people who care about your mission so much to fulfill the potential they have to help you advance it if you're the executive director. And I just think that we, I want people to focus on the possibilities and what can be developed and how boards can be a real positive influence uh, instead of giving up on them or worse, being very disgruntled about them. And the Loving Your Board title uh, really has two dimensions for me. One is that you will come to love your board because your board will develop into the asset you deserve it to be. And the other is that that can happen by you investing your caring and support or love in them. So um, that's kind of the way I feel about it. I think we've got great boards and we should have more of them and we can well, I, and I absolutely agree. And, and uh, for a long time, listeners of uh, of this podcast, you know, I have often said, you know, I've, I, I've worked with a lot of boards of directors, just as you have, and I have I have really yet to meet a board member who truly wanted to destroy the organization that <laughs> right. uh, the board of which they were serving. However, you know, there are some who you know sort of feel like that is exactly what they're out to do, and there are some people who feel that that kind of conflict between a, a chief executive and a board is a healthy thing or something that should be expected. Um, I don't believe that. I don't think you believe that. So could, mm -hmm. you, could you share with our listeners today what is the correct relationship between a board of directors and a chief executive? Well, well, that's that's a kind of loaded question, Ted. But um, I I think there are definitely characteristics in that relationship, and one is very high trust, high trust that uh, I discovered in my research with uh, 
the chairs of boards and their paired executives when I was doing my doctoral work, I found that those pairs actually had a more personal level of trust. They didn't just know each other, they really identified with each other. Now that's with the board chair uh, directly, but ideally you would want that high level, it's called identification-based trust, high level trust with every board member. And working to build your trust, which you know I talk about how you do that in the book, but working to build your trust is one of the most important strategies that an executive can use to strengthen that board executive relationship. So high trust is a characteristic, and I think when you have that, you can then go to working out who does what. Now, there are clearly governing roles, and there are leadership and management roles that are the executive's responsibility, but both the executive and the board lead the organization, and you do that together. And I think that that leading involves envisioning the future that you want to create together, uh, developing a plan to create it, and then implementing the plan and, and working out together who's doing what part of this, who owns what part of this. I think the roles of executive and board are, are out there. It's clear there's lots of information about that. But I think it's the ability, the quality of the relationship you're talking about, ideal, is the ability to come together as an effective team with the executive on the team, not necessarily on the board. I don't particularly espouse that. But with the executive on the team, you're the leadership team, and you're making the decisions, and you're setting the plans, and the relationships needed for people to collaboratively work together like that. Um, are the kind of relationships you want to have, and those are ideal for the board and the executive. Not a supervisor, you know, we're over you kind of thing, although there is a paradox, there is tension, because the board does have to step back and evaluate the executive. But um, we're, I'm getting off on something else now, but uh, I do yeah, think okay. that relationship is... Yeah, you're putting out a lot of concepts there, and they're really important. And, of course, you know, people come to this podcast because uh, they want to learn from people like you on, you know, how should they approach things, you know. So uh, some of the things that you put out there I want to kind of unpack a little bit. Um, One one of which is something I think that that you uh, clearly have a position on, and I want you to, you know, share your strong position on whether or not the chief executive should also serve as a member of the board. Oh, I do have a strong opinion about that. And uh, to me it's very clear. In the United States there is a law called – Uh, duty of loyalty. And anyone who is a board member, even of a for-profit company, corporation, must abide by duty of loyalty. Now, I'm sure not everyone's going to agree with me, but this is where conflict of interest uh, lies, uh, of course. But I think that for an executive or CEO of a nonprofit to sit on the board puts that person in a conflict of interest more often than not. Because how the board acts and the decisions the board makes affect that person's job every single day. How can that not be a conflict of interest for them? What the board does is totally influence the organization. The executive is responsible for the organization. I mean, I think you could think of lots of examples of how the board's decisions, opinions, actions – all influence that person's job. Now, I do think the executive should be influencing the board, partnering with the board, but I don't think the executive can sit on the board and, frankly, obey duty of loyalty, which they're legally obligated to do if they are a voting board member. So it's really pretty straightforward to me. Yeah, and I and I, I would you know it, obviously there you know there's always circumstances, but I think in terms of a principle, you know, making sure that the board of directors they are there to set the strategic direction, to provide oversight to the organization, and to hire and fire the the chief executive. Um, and if the chief executive is is a voting member of all of those decisions, I think it, it's really hard 
uh, for conflicts of interest, as you said, not, not to arise. Now, in your book, very clearly, it's starting off with this concept of love your board, but, but you make the, 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 uh, the point in your book very, very strongly that an effective board matters. Um, there are some who feel that, um, uh, that sort of putting the board in its place, um, you know, minimizing the board's interaction um, makes for a happier uh, uh, staff uh, interaction. Um, I don't think you agree with that. I don't agree with that. How do we break out of the thinking that the board just needs to have its small little role um, and we'll get on with running the organizations ourselves? Well, I'm glad you agree with me, Ted. Let me just say that because this is something I really do feel strongly about. And I think the passion I have for this was born out of my experience over the last 19 years seeing boards and the possibilities of the difference they can make for their organization. I think that that's how to help people break out of it, is to actually learn about what are the wonderful, incredible, impactful, advancing things that boards are doing in their boardrooms for the nonprofits they're serving. And I think that executives who look at their board and say, you know, I'd rather have a lame duck board are, uh, frankly, they're, they're doing their nonprofit a disservice. They're not investing all the resources and potential they could in advancing the mission of their organization. So I really ask them to reconsider. I know there's a lot of pain out there. I tell a lot of stories of the pain in the book, but um, I really think it's about what could be possible and I know that but the other element that I think influences this attitude, uh, Ted, of the negativity toward boards is the fact that executives work so hard, and I want to acknowledge that. And working with the board takes a lot of time and energy and commitment. So, you know, I can see the reluctance to just keep piling more on your plate. Uh, you know, I lived that job. I know how difficult it is. But I also know how exciting it is and the reason we do it is for all those wonderful rewards of the changes that we see our nonprofit making better for the good. And when boards are at their best, they're right there with us, supporting us, uh, cheering us on and contributing to the ways our nonprofit is making a difference. And I just find it hard to believe that uh, effective executives, uh, those that really care and are, are good at doing what they do, uh, would wa not want that. I don't understand why yeah. they wouldn't want that. Well, I think sometimes it's inherited and sometimes, um, you know, boards of directors – you know, have a lot of baggage um, that sort of predates mm -hmm. the chief executive and, and, you know, sort of unpacking that baggage um, can, can sometimes be, uh, you know, just a lot of work, as you said. Yeah. There's, there's nothing easy about building and, 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 and working with a highly functioning effective board. Um, it's just, it's part of your job. So I think, I think that's right. where you and I really agree here is that, you know, if you are a chief executive who feels like you've, you've successfully sort of put your board in its place and it's in a nice little box, uh, a couple of things I would say to that point is, you know, I'm sure that you are superhuman um, and I'm sure that you are doing a great job. Um, however, you are not meeting your potential if you don't have a strong and effective board um, because there's just not enough hours in the day for a chief executive to accomplish all the things that the organization needs accomplished, but with a strong board, an effective and engaged board, um, that's exactly what an organization can have, and that's part of the, the role in it. I think that's really the, the beauty of, of, uh, of your book. Um, so, uh, Mary, we're going to take um, just a couple-minute break here, and when we come back, we're going to really get into, uh, into the book. And part of what I really like about the, the book is that you have it uh, structured around uh, sort of three key concepts that, that I want to really make sure that our listeners are able to learn from you today, and that's capacity connection, and culture, and those are three things that Mary Highland very much uh, believes in, and uh, she's going to make sure that when we come back, you learn all about it, and we'll be right back. 
have a great idea and need to work with others to bring it to life, how do you do it? Sometimes it's tough because the people you work with are in different places, with different schedules, using different devices. Google Apps lets you bring ideas to life with others. Here's how. Start with email that offers more. Gmail does more than send and receive emails. It connects people and lets you chat instantly while viewing a snapshot of your team's relevant activities and access to everything they shared with you. With Google Docs, there's only one version for everyone to work on. Share easily with the right people without email attachments or compatibility hassles. And work together on the same docs at the same time in a way that simply makes sense. Edit and interact easily with integrated social commenting. Google Calendar makes it easy to share schedules and find times to meet and schedule or update meetings with a few clicks. Everyone can't be in the same place at the same time, but Google Apps lets you work together from any place. With multi-way video chat, you'll feel like you're all in the same room. While screen sharing and integration with Google Docs lets you work with more people from anywhere on any device, even on your mobile phone or tablet. Work with any team at any time, from any place, on any device. Google Apps. Work in the future, today. To learn more, go to google.com slash apps. And just a programming note, uh, we end uh, our uh, beginning of the year series for this podcast uh, today, and we will be on summer hiatus and coming back uh, to you. Mark your calendar. We will be back with an exciting uh, podcast on October. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always free and always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now back to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. We're back here live with Mary Highland uh, and her terrific uh, new book, Love Your Board. And Mary, just before we went on that quick break, um, I just sort of shared this structure that you have for your, uh, for your book. Um, and I want to make sure that we cover each of the, the areas here. Um, and that's capacity, connection, and culture. Um, and, uh, and then from there, uh, you break things out to people and process. So let's talk first about capacity and, and people. So when we're talking about loving our board, help us understand your position here. Well, first uh, I want to say, Ted, that to understand these three things, I, I was responding years ago to a question someone was asking me about, what is the problem you're trying to solve when I was working with, with executives and their boards? And I had this huge sheet up on my wall with all these problems and issues, and I really did a lot of work on answering that question, frankly, over several years. And what I finally discovered, and it finally dawned on me that these three things we're going to talk about Every single problem that I saw with clients, that executives shared, that I knew about when I was an executive and heard my colleagues' stories, everything kept falling into one of these three categories. And I realized that these were dimensions of the board, and I, of course, wanted to give them all names that flowed together. Uh, but these are things that I would uh, say any problem you have with your board is going to fit into one of these three categories. And within each of these, as you've pointed out, there's a people side and a process side. So for capacity, and this is this is the level that I think most executives go to first. And frankly, they should go here first, but it's not the only place to go. And, and the 
the underlying issue in the book is that we need to go deeper sometimes, and connection and culture are deeper dimensions of your board. But the capacity people part is where you need to look at, do you have the right people? Um, Do you have enough of them? How do you think about that? What are characteristics that you need on your board? Uh, One of the things I talk about is you need to align your board composition with your strategic goals. So the capacity of your board uh, in, in many ways begins with the people who are sitting around the table but also with you. And uh, there's a part in that capacity chapter that talks about you as the executive, how important you are to both the development of the board and the ongoing uh, effectiveness of the board, the composition of the board. You have a role in all of it. And so the book is written to executive directors, but it's about boards. And, you know, people may think, well, what's my job relative to that? Well, I tell you uh, what your job is. And in the capacity part, it's so important for you to have a really, really good board recruitment process. And I I talk about that in the book as well, a a system that I've tested with many nonprofits. Um, And, of course, nowadays diversity is such a critical, critical issue. It all flows in. Uh, that way too. So your capacity uh, is yours personally as an executive as well as your boards, and it starts with the people. Yeah, and I love that you start here, but but you start in a place that is not always comfortable for a board of directors. Uh, you know, they're they're generally pretty good at evaluating and judging the work of the chief executive, but it's a far bigger task for them to then grapple with how do they evaluate themselves? Um, yeah. how, how do they strategically plan for themselves? So can you share with us what is uh, a, a good practice that our chief executives and, and others and board members who are listening today can take forward to, to know that you're moving in the right direction for capacity and for people? Well, I think that, um, well, I have to say, if you have the book, you have uh, an outline, in effect, and information and resources that are things that should be making up your capacity. So you you need the right people for you. There's no magic formula for, you know, in the old days, Ted, you're, probably too young to even remember when we used to have this checkoff, oh, we need an attorney, we need this, we need that. Um, You need to be strategic about the composition of your board. Look at your strategic goals and say, what kind of team do we need here? You know, um, a a soccer team is not going to do too well on the baseball field. You really need to know where you're going and what your goals are, and that should help you at at least as the first big important step in creating the composition of your board. And uh, the other uh, capacity issue is in processes. The whole infrastructure of your board is related to good process that the board uses, its meeting process, uh, its policies, uh, the procedures and practices. Now, I'm not an overly rule-based person, but, you know, we all know that effective ways of working together get results. And so you want to be sure you are agreeing on and defining effective ways to work together. And that gets codified in your uh, board policies and practices. So the capacity piece is all about sort of building the infrastructure of the board, the composition of the board, and all the tools that the board needs in place, like a good board recruitment process, a good orientation process, um, you know, a good executive director evaluation process. I have seen many crises around that process for sure. A good assessment process, as you mentioned, Ted, uh, to effectively know how are you doing against the standards of what an effective board is supposed to be. And the board has a responsibility to check in on itself. So all those pieces are really important 
and they're important parts of the board capacity. They're not going to solve everything, but their uh, being in place can just help tremendously in the functioning of the board. Yeah, so you're, you, thank you for bringing us into capacity process. Um, let's start off with um, tenure and rotation um, yeah. and what, what your stance is on that, and, and does that uh, become an important discussion to have with your board? Absolutely. And, you know, you said something earlier, Ted, about the board, you know, as an asset as we were discussing. And when you think about it, executives, if you have 15 additional people championing your organization, going out and building relationships, making contacts and connections, advocating if that's relevant for your mission with legislators, with council people. You personally are so leveraged. That's how the power of the board really builds and supports the executive. So um, I I got off on that a little bit, and I think I I lost track of where you wanted me to go with this, uh, Ted. No, sorry. Well, I, I did want to, I did want to give uh, have you give as concrete of uh, an answer on tenure and rotation, oh, right, um, and how right. that fits into capacity and process. And the reason I brought that other part up was because the um, the board is is this asset of relationships. You could look at your board and think of your board members as little hubs of networks. Each one of them is a hub of a network. And when you have the same network over and over and over again, you're tapping into it, you've tapped it, right? So I think the fear of board terms, you know, people rotating off the board, is that they think somehow this person is going to go away. Somehow we're going to lose that network. Somehow we're going to lose that involvement. Well, frankly, shame on you if you do. There is no reason you need to lose that person. So that if you have term limits, for example, you are building all those little hubs. You have a lot more of them than you will if you have the same 12, 15 people sitting around the table for 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. Now, I realize that uh, a two-, three-year term is the most common or a three-, two-year term. So you're already getting people engaged for six years. Well, when you bring on a new board member, if you've done your recruitment well, you have a whole new group of people through that board member that you're able to connect with, whether it's for fundraising, advocacy, uh, just ambassadorship to get the word out about what you're all doing. That is hugely valuable. And so to me, for a board uh, to not have term limits, it's like leaving money on the table from my point of view. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you yeah, know, no, that's no. my argument. Yeah. Well, and those are important. I, I think it, it we'll move on uh, from this point. But, you know, there's also a concept uh, that, that I speak of uh, quite a lot is that, you know, some board members don't know how to say goodbye. Um, and, and so mm. you, providing a process for that, everyone needs renewal. Everybody needs an opportunity to take a breath. Um, and so I, I'm a big fan of uh, tenure and rotation, which doesn't mean yeah. that someone can't rotate off and then come back um, if they're that valuable. But, um, you know, if, if, again, to your point, if, if all you are doing is constantly uh, churning through the exact same number of people, don't expect that you're getting new uh, perspectives or new ideas. Right. Um, and, right. and particularly today, everybody needs to be looking at their organizations in different ways uh, on a regular basis. So let's, let's move on to a connection uh, and people. And I think you touched a lot on that in terms of these hubs, your, 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 your concept of, you know, every person is a hub to a network and, and by creating um, an extensive network that really expands your, your capacity as chief executive and, and therefore your staff. Right, right. Well, and in in the book, I will say that the connection that I focus on is the connection between the executive and the board and the executive and the board chair and the board members amongst themselves. Um, You're pointing out there's a whole other world of connections outside the organization, but I do believe a lot of the tools and strategies that that I 
provide are, are relevant to all those relationships. So the executive board relationship, and particularly the executive uh, board chair relationship, is uh, that relationship is, is, I would say, the most critical relationship in your nonprofit. And having a healthy board chair executive relationship is just so, so important because I have just seen over and over again, if that relationship is stalled or bad, it influences not just the board, but the staff. It's amazing how it trickles down into the rest of the organization. So, you know, connection it's one thing to have a bunch of people around a table and have the right people, you know, having good process, but if the quality of the relationship you have with each of those people is not strong, uh, it's not going to work as well for you. And that's what connection is all about, is being in quality relationships with people. And how do you do that? I used to think everybody knew how to be in good relationships with people, and mm -hmm. uh, I learned otherwise, that not everyone really knows how to be intentional uh, and effective in building relationships with, with others. So I think that's mm -hmm. so important. Well, well it is, and, and you make that point in your, in your, your book where you, uh, you say that uh, having the right people on your board hardly matters if you don't have trusting relationships with them. All right. the benefits from the gift someone brings to the board will be unrealized if you're not in relationships with each other in a meaningful way. So th this, this whole notion of connection uh, with each of the, the board members and making them feel engaged, right, to make them mm -hmm. understand what their role is, that, that really does fall to the chief executive, right, to make sure that there yeah. is proper engagement um, and that the board isn't being somehow sidelined because it's a lot of work. Right. It is a lot of work. And, okay, we come back to that theme for the executive. You need to help your board understand that a big chunk of your time is going to them and uh, to make sure that you have realistic expectations of yourself in that sense. But that is important, and this is why the board chair is such an important partner for you in building those relationships because the board chair is the coach of the team, in effect, and needs to have those relationships too. So it's all, you know, that whole network of relationships and how you understand each other, how you manage expectations, how you're clear. Uh, you know, we talk, I talk about incapacity, but you have to be clear about what people can and will do. And you need the relationships so people will share that with you. Yeah. And, and I think you make such an important, important point here um, in your uh, in your book with connection and people. Um, and and I, it really, I, I think it will come home for a lot of folks if they're just honest with each other. You know, why do you not have a strong relationship with your board? And, and you just ask the question, you're not pointing any fingers, uh, but right. you're just asking the question is, you know, are you insecure and too self-focused to actually do good here or are you doing more harm? And, and I think that's yeah. just a level of honesty that you, you do have to look to yourself if it's a, if it, it's a toxic relationship. Uh, not to say that the board doesn't have a role in fixing that as well, but you might want to fix yourself first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tell that story of, of the consultant who, when I was having a challenge with a relationship, I asked her help and how was I going to work with this person. And, and the first question she asked me was, what's your role? in creating this pattern that isn't working. And that was a really, really important lesson for me, is to really reflect on ourselves first and uh, what are we doing to perpetuate the problem we're trying to solve before we start looking out to others to be the source of the problem. And that's important for the way you work with your board too. It really is. Um, now let's look at the other side of, of this topic as well. Uh, and that is every board member does not know how to be a good board member. Mm -hmm. um, and so where do they, where do they go, get those skills from if they're going to be a good member of the team? 
Well, I think that it's about understanding, and we're going back a little of the capacity, but also in the process when you're engaging people, when you're bringing them in as a member of the team, um, you know, you need to look for the qualities you need in people, leadership is a critical quality. doesn't mean everybody needs to be in charge, but you're looking for the qualities you need in people, people who will fit with the board. That gets into the culture piece. But, you know, you need to teach them what the job is. You don't hire people and then not tell them anything about the job. Um, and this is a, a big problem in the sector where, I mean, I did some research board members, 75% of them said they never had a formal orientation to what it means to be a board member. In other words, they were elected into a job. They didn't even know what it was. Um, you know, I mean, that might sound a little extreme, but People need to understand what's expected of them. And so when you go to connection, you're going to a deeper level of exploring those expectations. It isn't just what's written on a piece of paper that somebody can read. It's about working it out together in a relationship. And I think that's that's the qualitative difference when you start to go a little deeper of how board members can understand how do I add value? How can I be engaged here? Um, how do I work effectively with others? What are their expectations and styles? All those kinds of things. Mary, I'm going to throw four concepts that you talk about in your book uh, into the conversation here. And, and each one of these are somewhat incendiary. So I'm going to let you uh, sort of unpack oh, these because I can, I can, okay. I can almost feel um, our listeners sort of nodding their heads saying, yes, Mary, yes, Mary, but, uh, how about these four concepts that, that yep. you throw out here? Uh, first is micromanagement. Second mm-hmm. is patronizing. Uh, third is absenteeism. And fourth is power struggle. Those are four really tough, uh, very real topics mm-hmm. that boards and yeah. chief executives deal with. Right. Yeah, and those are, you know, those are the stories that I, that I used to describe. What do you do about those? You know, micromanagement is a real problem, and sometimes it's – and this is where the different levels of, of, I think, you know, capacity, connection, and culture come in. At at one level, it could be a board member just doesn't understand the job, and so they're getting involved in things they shouldn't be getting involved in. Um, On another level, they're control freaks. You know, they feel like they need to uh, micromanage you because – Underlying that, folks, is trust. They don't trust that you're doing it right. Or maybe they have an ego issue and they think they could do it better. Um, Those are all connection issues. And it could be also a a culture issue that you've stepped into an organization with a board just uh, ongoing has thought its job was something it wasn't, and that was your job instead. So. So these are all problems that are very real for people out there. The patronizing, you know, uh, the board chair who thinks they're your boss. I'm sorry. I see that a lot. I even saw that in some bylaws once. Ridiculous. Um, Absenteeism. uh, This is not something people talk about as much as, as micromanaging. Absenteeism is when the board chair particularly just isn't around, can't do what you need him or her to do. Uh, They're not bad. They're great when they're there, but you need them a whole lot more than they are making themselves available to you. So what do you do about that? That's, That's a tough one. And then, of course, the power struggles is it can be like another side of micromanagement, but this is where a board chair particularly, or even a board member who chairs a committee thinks they know better than you do, and you start to have a conflict over what is going to inform the board, what is going to inform the board decisions. So these are all real problems. Um, But hopefully I give you some tips and tools that you can see will work. I've seen them work. Uh, That's the other thing about what's in the book, Ted, is that – this is evidence-based 
stuff. This is not just stuff that I think would be nice to do. Um, these are strategies that others have tried and they have worked or even have been researched and found to work. So I want people to understand yeah. that. It's, it's really good stuff, frankly. <laughs> and not all of it is mine uh, that I made up. It's stuff that I just know we know works. Yeah, and, and 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 that is important. Is to you know you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can go back no. to things that work. Um, and so let's let's talk. You know, moving on to uh, process and connection. Um, let's talk about the central role of needing to have a very good chair. Oh um, yeah. And and one of the things that that comes to to mind very much is is this notion of board members who are not engaged, who are absent. Uh, who are not participating in board meetings and committee uh, work and other contributions that are expected of the board. Um, one of the number one jobs of the chair uh, is to be that person who is having those conversations, who is setting the expectation and holding board members accountable or seeing to it that they're not on the board anymore. But oftentimes, and you point this out in, in, in your book, and, I'm, and I just want to ask you to share some remedies here, oftentimes the board itself will tolerate disengagement uh, and even make excuses uh, for for that kind of behavior, which ultimately, Mary, that creates a cancer on the board that's never going to serve it well. Absolutely. And that's where in the process side of connection, I talk about the board becoming an effective team. And um, one, the thing you're describing of that complacency happens because people don't want to confront each other. They're not comfortable. Who wants to get into conflict? Heck, I'm a volunteer. I didn't sign up for that. But if you are proactive in creating the, the structures within your team and agreements, so critical agreements within your team about how are we going to do something when something's not working you have agreed ahead of time I mean that's the ideal and so when you go to implement something when there's a problem you've all agreed so you it doesn't make it as personal so for example on the accountability um, in some ways it shouldn't all fall to the board chair all the time. The board as a group should agree on when somebody's not doing what they said they were going to do, uh, how are we going to hold each other accountable? Have that conversation together. Get an agreement about what's the process you're going to use. Uh, treat each other as if you'd want to be treated. Don't just step back, avoid, and then three months later, kick the person off the board or, you know, this is not constructive. So there are ways to be proactive to deal with the problems. And maybe it does end up being that you have to ask someone to leave, but there's a lot you can do before that to uh, solve these problems and prevent them, frankly. Yeah. Well, and let's go right there. Again, a connection process um, you've got to really be focused on your recruitment process and mm-hmm. the role that that plays in building a stronger board. So talk us through what you mean there and how we can all benefit from your wisdom. Well, there's, there's elements of recruitment, and one is to prepare. You know, this is something that people don't do. They just say, oh, well, let's go find someone. Well, some executives and boards get it that they have to have criteria, that they want to have criteria. Think through that criteria, though. What are your strategic criteria? You want character. You want contribution. You need competence, and that's in whatever areas are strategic for your board. You need connections. Um, Even if you're not using the board to raise a lot of money, you still need connections, and you need compatibility. These are characteristics you need in every board member, and so use that framework to think through uh, how are you recruiting? And then when you go to talk to the person, this is one mistake I see a lot, is don't start by selling your nonprofit. Your job is to get to know this person. If you were interviewing someone for a job, you wouldn't spend the majority of the time talking them into why they should want your job. You would be asking them questions so that you can assess do they fit 
with this job. And that's exactly the way you should approach board recruitment as well. Do they have what you need? Are their interests, uh, the reasons for wanting to be a part of your organization? All these things, you're assessing them and their fit with you. And, you know, there's a lot more dimensions to it, but that's one of the most important um, dimensions of the board recruitment that I did it when I was an executive. I made that mistake. You know, I came to the the first interview prepared with the packet, all this wonderful information. The board chair and I told them all about how wonderful we were. And then that person is sifting and saying, what piece of this appeals to me? And they'll pick maybe one area that they like. But because you haven't opened up all the possibilities, you could be missing out on something. I missed out on a great fundraiser because of that. Totally bypassed that in the board member because we didn't ask about it. So that's just another one. Uh, part. Yeah, and that's great. And another part of your sort of connection process um, is uh, sort of reading through the book. It, it's, it sounds like the chief executive's job in working with the board chair is, is to set the board up for success, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that topics are established in such a way that you can get help, help them get to an agreement rather than having conflict. Um, and, and I guess part of what I'm, I'm reading in, in your book is um, don't just show up to board meetings expecting everybody's going to vote on what you want them to vote if you haven't put the work in. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, so did, of course, you want them engaged. Right, you want them engaged, but how does a chief executive uh, prepare for board meetings to build that trust and to help enhance moving forward on process? Well, that's a pretty big question, but it's really, I think, about working effectively with the board chair. I mean, you, you're leading your organization. You know what the challenges are. Hopefully, you've got a really good strategic plan with some measurable goals you're all working toward. So how are you structuring what you're bringing to the board around their leadership role with you in terms of where you're going, what's in the way, what are the challenges, what are new opportunities? Those things evolve over time. And how are you keeping them top of mind by what you're bringing to the board? If you're bringing to the board details of your operations, that's where they're going to go. You know, so you want to keep, take the opportunity of working out the board agenda with the board chair to keep the issues and questions at the strategic level. Um, you want to once in a while inspire people with a good story about your mission. You want to engage them. It doesn't all have to be decisions in business. And you want to give them a chance to talk about what matters to your organization and to the board so they can be begin to build those connections and understand the values they share uh, together around what's important and how they share those values by having some just, you know, open-ended discussions about things. So you as the executive really can influence the quality of the board meetings by working with the chair on what goes on that agenda. And, you know, bring what you need. Bring what you need, but also take what you need to committees. Everything doesn't have to go to the board, which I'm sure everybody knows that. That's right. So, Mary, thank you for for being my guest uh, here and for bringing this uh, wonderful book, Love Your Board. We love your book. Um, We only have a couple minutes left, and so just want to wrap things up with, uh, you know, the complex topic of culture. But if you could just kind of take us uh, to the end of the show here with, you know, if you're wondering what your role as executive director is or can be in shaping the board's culture, remember you're a member of the team. Yes, yes. And I think that if if your readers just, uh, your listeners just remember that culture is about what you do not what you say, that culture of the board is created by the patterns of behavior and actions the board takes over and over again so that it just becomes, quote, the way we do things. Executive director's role can be so powerful if things seem off track, if things aren't working, you can ask questions that cause the board to reflect on why is it that way? 
what is it about our culture? This is the toughest part because you have to go deeper. But the executive does have a role by asking the questions, mentioning, why isn't this working? Or we thought we wanted to go here and we're not getting there. Why do we think that's the case? These are things that bring up issues that might be barriers that are really at the cultural level. Like if you can't recruit for diversity, you know what? That might be the culture of the board. There may be underlying biases and resistance that simply are not getting surfaced. Uh, that's a tough one, of course, but it's real. So you as an executive have a role in, in I would say, asking critical good questions to help shape the culture. Mary, we're, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time, and I want to thank you, and please, everyone, do yourself a favor. Rush over to Amazon, type in Love Your Board, and buy this book. You can find uh, Mary Highland at highlandconsulting.org. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.